T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly. In for Glenn Mack now. On this Sunday, alongside Ray Dinger, in a, in a couple minutes here, I do want to ask Ray about a current Eagle and his potential Hall of Fame candidacy down the line. Talk about the Hall of Fame earlier, but uh, right now, back to the phones. Let's go to Earl in the Northeast. What's up, Earl? Hey, Ray and Tom. Um, Ray, I just finished finished business. Tremendous. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. That's uh, from what Earl's talking about is uh, is my book um, called Finished Business, and it's. Uh, it's actually still out there. If you're, it's, it's in some bookstores and it's uh, on Amazon. So if you're interested, and in, uh, now the football season's over, and maybe you have a little more time on your hands, and you feel like doing a little reading, check it out. I especially enjoy the photograph uh, on the front cover of the book where you're giving the old President Bill Clinton thumbs up sign. <laughs> well, you know who took that picture, Earl? I don't. That picture was taken by none other than Michael Barkan. <laughs> we were up we were up in in our um in the booth where we were going to be doing the post game show it was shot at the, obviously at the super bowl when the eagles had won the game the celebration you can see the celebration on the field behind me right right i just didn't gather that was the super bowl interesting no okay. it was no it was the super bowl and michael and i was i was standing there just watching the whole celebration taking it all in and uh i heard michael behind me say hey ray and i turned around and there was michael with his cell phone and he snapped the picture and i you know i i Gave him the thumbs up, and I thought it was a nice picture. And then it wound up becoming the cover of the book. So uh, thank you, Michael Barkan. Yeah, it's funny how those things uh, come to be. Uh, you mentioned Steve Van Buren a little bit early in the show. I'll tell you what, number 15 is quite a lure in Philadelphia sports history. Hal Greer, 76ers. Yeah. Richie Allen, Phillies. Steve Van Buren, Eagles. Yes, indeed. Someone of my generation who was born in 1974, which incidentally is the first season of Bill Berge in town. You mentioned him before also. Right. I only remember number 15 as being like Dave Hollins, you know? So it's interesting. <laughs> your, your your view of sports in a city is, is shaped by your youth. It really is. Oh, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I hadn't thought about the fact that, uh, that number 15 has been retired by by two of the franchises. I don't know that I don't know if the Sixers have I don't think the Sixers have retired Hal Greer's fifteen. They could. I mean Hal was a Hall of Fame player. But I know the Eagles retired in fact Van Buren's number, Van Buren's fifteen was the first number the Eagles retired. And the Phillies just got around to retiring Dick Allen's number. Uh but you're right, that's a, that's a number with a real proud history here in Philadelphia. I don't think the Flyers will be retiring number fifteen for Pat Falloon anytime soon, so <laughs> 
No, probably not. Yeah, old, old, real old Flyers fans will remember number fifteen was as Gary Peters, but that's uh, that's going back to nineteen sixty-seven. I there weren't that many of us in the stands then, but I I do remember those original Flyers. But yeah, it doesn't have quite the number doesn't have quite the distinction with the with the Flyers. Uh, some residual questions from the Super Bowl that I know that you would have the answer most likely. Um, they were at some point talking about firsts in the game, which. I guess this was the first time two former number one overall draft choices at the quarterback position matched up against each other. Yes, I, I, had, I, had, I, had, I had not true? thought about that, but I, I did hear that said, yes. So, I mean, it took that long, all the, all the years of the Super Bowl, all, all that span of time for that, to, where two number one overall picks were QBs who could match up against each other. Obviously, the number one overall selection is not a quarterback every year, so... I thought that was very interesting, and then made me think back. I remember the 85 Super Bowl, which was the springboard to Buddy Ryan coming here off their success. Right. Right. Wasn't that the first Super Bowl that featured two head coaches in the game, Mike Ditka and Raymond Barry, who were already in the Hall of Fame as players, or am I misremembering? No. I Well, that that's certainly a true Thanks. statement. You had um, both the head coaches were in the Hall of Fame as players. Um and uh, Raymond Barry was a gr- was a great receiver with the Baltimore Colts. I mean, he was Johnny Unitas. Is a, it was Unitas to Barry, Unitas to Barry. I mean, that was that was the uh, the great passing combination of the fifties into the sixties. And then Mike Ditka was was a was a great tight end, a prototype, really the first great prototype tight end with the Chicago Bears. Two Hall of Fame players that were both coaches. I think that's yeah. I can't think of another time that that's there aren't that many. To be honest, there aren't that many Hall of Fame players that become coaches in no. pro football. There, that, that, I mean, that in itself is pretty rare. But you'd have that, you would have two of them coaching against each other in the Super Bowl. You say it's the first time it happened. Um, it very well may be the only time it's happened. I can't remember another one. Yeah, and Ray, I just got to tell you, I'm looking at this picture uh, on the, the cover of the Finnish business, business book. This is a tremendous picture here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Michael Barkan, great job cap- capturing you in the moment and you couldn't have a more appropriate picture to be on the cover of the book than this yeah and that's it was totally spontaneous we were all we were all up there michael michael's running around with the cell phone snapping pictures of everybody <laughs> governor rendell seth barrett I, everybody I, I can only imagine how crazy michael must have been going at that point after the eagles won the super bowl we all were we all were uh that was cuz we had a our vantage point there is we were in the end zone behind the end zone where the Hail Mary came down. So it all kind of happened right in front of us. Uh, and where we were, we had a whole bunch of Eagles fans right in front of where we were. Um, of course, anybody that was there knows that that stadium was three-quarters Eagles fans. I mean, it, it really looked and sounded like an Eagles home game. It, it, it truly did. I mean, there was, Tommy, there were so many aspects of that that almost seemed like fate. You know, the way the Eagles got there, the whole underdog thing, um, the fact that, and this it was it, it, purely by accident, coincidence, the two musical people before the game were both from Philadelphia. I mean, people think that was that was somehow arranged. It was done way ahead of time. There was no connection to it. But they had, you know, Lamar Odom, who's from West Oak Lane, came in and sang America the Beautiful, and Pink, who's from, I think, Bucks County. Mm-hmm. She sang the national anthem. So you had that Philadelphia connection there. Um Everything and, and the fact that the stadium was so green and the, 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 the Eagles chant was so ubiquitous all over the place. I mean, from like an hour before the game, the fans in there were chanting the Eagles chant. 
it just felt like it just felt like an Eagles home game. Um, and to just watch the game unfold the way it unfolded was uh, was truly magical. So that that moment that Michael captured there with me up there giving the thumbs up with the celebration going behind me. When I looked at that, I said, I can't imagine it could be a better picture for the cover of the book. So yeah. that's how it wound up there. Yeah, because I'm just looking at it. I'm like, this looks like a professional photo. I mean, it looks like you were posed and everything. And to know it's just Michael getting it uh, on the fly is pretty impressive. Just, just Michael got it on his cell phone. And I looked at it. And when I, I, when I wrote the book and they said, well, do you have any idea for a cover picture? I said, I think I do. <laughs> and there it was. It could, could not have done a better one. There you go. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. Go to Wade and Chester. What's up, Wade? Hey, hey, what's going on, fellas? How we doing? Hello, Wade. Listen, there's some narratives that's being pushed around that bothers me. Ever since we've been talking about this Carson Wentz thing again, is that people keep saying and making a statement that we wouldn't have gotten there without him. And I understand that Carson Wentz was indeed a part of us winning that Super Bowl, okay, because he played those games. But we got to stop saying that you, we wouldn't have gotten – you don't know that. You know what I'm saying? We don't know that Nick Foles wouldn't have be, been able to beat 13 bad teams in that season because we only played four teams that year with a winning record. You know what I'm saying? And with Carson Wentz at the helm, we were 2-2 two and two in that because we lost to Seattle and we lost to Kansas City. We beat the Rams and we beat Carolina when Luke Keekley went out of that game. So – and to the point that the, even the team itself took offense to that. Because they started doing that, that, that narrative, we all we got, we all we need. Right. Our, our team actually had to go and win the Super Bowl knowing that their fans wasn't behind them. You know what I'm saying? Like, they should have been. And, and that's to, to me, that's disheartening. Because we go out there, we had these parades, and we celebrate the Super Bowl. But understand, 80% of us, or 70% of our fan base, didn't even think we were going to win when Carson Wentz went out. So I don't like that, and I, I think that we need to stop doing these narratives and try to just stay with the moment of reality because if you look at it, Ray, these these Super Bowls and these Super Bowl teams, the way they're built, like Tampa Bay, the Rams, you can't tell me the Rams fan base actually feel connected to those players that just won that Super Bowl. Well, they're happy they won, but there's no connecting there. You know what I'm saying? Like, we – I don't even know how to put it into words, but I don't want to try to duplicate what the Rams or Tampa Bay did. What I want to do, because we know that there's a variety of ways that you can win a Super Bowl. So if I had my judges and I would want to win it with our core of guys, I don't want to go out and do this mercenary thing because you're only going to be there for two years. Because once you win it, then the team's going to try to re-sign the guys just to see if they can run it back and then realize they can't run it back. Well, you know pretty what much. Saying? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, pretty much that's, that's, that's the way it works. And, um, you know, that's, you, can't, you, can't really, you, you can't really compare Philadelphia and Los Angeles as football towns. No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's two different – it's two totally different universes. Um, yeah, the Los, you said the Los Angeles fans don't identify with this Rams. The Los Angeles fans don't identify with pro football. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, if you, I, I was kind of amused by everybody saying that the Rams have this big home field. The Rams have a big advantage because they're playing in, in their home stadium. No, they don't. I mean, yeah, they're playing in their home stadium, but there is no home field advantage for the Rams in Los Angeles. And part of the reason, I really believe, look, nobody ever came out and said this, and the Rams certainly aren't, as an organization, certainly aren't going to come out and say this. But I really do think one of the reasons that the Rams went so aggressively into winning, like right now, 
was they are trying to create a fan base in Los Angeles because the fans in Los Angeles didn't have pro football for a generation and frankly didn't feel like they missed anything. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea to get a team in Los Angeles was really driven by the league. It wasn't driven by the fans of Los Angeles. The fans of Los Angeles have not had pro football for years and really couldn't care less. But the league decided, well, no, we got to have a team in Los Angeles. So, okay, they created the situation. They put a team in Los Angeles, but the fans have never really embraced it. So that was one of the reasons why, hey, listen, we got to get these people on the bandwagon here. So we got to go out and build a team that can compete for a championship right away. That was the mentality there. It was a whole different situation. You're talking about Philadelphia. Right. And, you know, the difference, like we've talked about, is the Rams were in a different spot as an organization than the Eagles are. And like you said, part of it is trying to build a fan base, but part of it is also roster-wise, like they were clearly close. They'd been to a Super Bowl a few years ago. They got to the divisional round last year, so it made sense for them uh, to go out and make some of these win-now moves. But where I, I disagree with Wade and is like, I get if you don't like Carson Wentz now, like that's that's fine the way he handled things. But like the reason we talk about the Eagles wouldn't have won it without him is because they wouldn't have won it without him. And like I do think he deserves credit for for that part of it. And you know to just say oh well there's no way of knowing Nick Foles couldn't have done the same thing. Well Nick Foles didn't do the same thing, and Carson Wentz put them in a position uh, to win a Super Bowl. And regardless of how you feel about him now, he does deserve credit for that. No question. Yeah, and there's no question. And there's there's the idea of trying to go back and redefine or re-examine that whole season, uh, and it's it's silly. Just let it stand for what it was. Right. I mean, it was it was a it was the best season this franchise has ever had in its history, uh, and it happened for multiple reasons. And to try and say it was this or it was that, it was what it was. And everybody that was there contributed to it. And Carson Wentz contributed mightily to it. And then when he went down, I mean, he put them in a great position. He, play, was, he was the MVP of the league up to the point where he got hurt. He gets hurt. They've got the best record in football. They're in a position where they can get home field advantage for the postseason, which was turned out to be huge. And then for his everlasting credit, Nick Foles comes off the bench and, and, and takes you the rest of the way. But everybody had a hand in it. So to try and now sit back and say, well, this guy had more to do with it or that guy didn't contribute as much, they all contributed to it. And that's what that was the beauty of the whole thing. So all these years later, don't go back and start trying to pick it apart. It was what it was. Enjoy it for what it was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Mike in Arizona. What's happening, Mike? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Uh, uh, great show today. Uh, I was glad to hear you talk about uh, Vermeil and uh, Mike Lombardi's interview because I, I heard that this week and I was – I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, um, especially in the context of the Eagles. Um, everyone talks about the lack of first-round picks that Dick Vermeil uh, didn't have, but he also didn't have picks one through five his first two years. Right. Was, it wasn't until third year that he had, a, I think, a third-round pick. Yep. And, and also, there was no free agency in those days, at least as it's defined today. The Eagles' free agents were a bunch of scrap heap guys and – non-drafted players there wasn't good players coming from other teams right and also there was no salary cap so the good teams kept their great players paid them whatever they needed to pay them so rosters didn't turn over so to take that team with no picks no free agency and turn it into a super bowl team i mean i always measure the greatness in a coach of getting most out of players and i, I can't think of a better example of a coach getting the, the most out of those players that he had on that roster no, you're 100% right, uh, Mike. And I um, listen, I covered that team. I was the beat guy, so I was there every day. 
Um, and I saw what Dick inherited uh, and the challenge that he faced uh, to try and, and win and beat the Dallas Cowboys, who were an absolute power uh, and had built this team with tremendous depth and high draft picks. Uh, and you're going to try and beat them in the NFC East with a bunch of guys from literally off the street or the 6th, 7th, 8th, in some cases the 15th, 16th round of the draft. Um, it, 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 seemed, it seemed impossible. It really did. And, and, I knew, and I knew Dick Vermeule was a good coach. I had covered the Rose Bowl. I saw what he did taking that UCLA team and beating that Ohio State team and beating Woody Hayes. It was a masterful coaching job. So I knew the guy could coach. And he had NFL experience. Uh, and I certainly knew that nobody was working harder than he was. My God, nobody could work harder. I mean, he literally worked around the clock. Um, I just didn't see how he could possibly dig his way out of the hole that he had found himself in. And the fact that he did, uh, and by year three had them in the playoffs, and then by year five had them in the Super Bowl, is truly one of the greatest coaching achievements I've ever seen. And I saw it up close the whole time. So, you know, I knew what a coach he was. And then he comes back and does it again 14 years later with the Rams. Yeah, I mean, that goes way beyond just your win-loss percentage. I mean, that's just seeing what a guy you know, what a guy did and how that truly, in, in my view, defines great coaching. And Dick didn't just do it once. He did it twice. So, I mean, he's every bit a Hall of Famer. No question. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, one other quick comment uh, with Carson Wentz, wondering if he may be the next uh, Jim Plunkett, Trent Dilfer, Randall Cunningham with the Vikings, where he kind of discovers – himself works hard does what he needs to do and 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 leads a team to to greatness uh, at the end of his career uh your thoughts on that yeah mike um i kind of thought that was going to happen with the colts you know that's see what, what you're suggesting here and those are all good examples i mean the jim plunkett example is a real good one you know, guy was the first overall pick in the draft heisman trophy winner got in a bad situation in new england got beat up lost his job lost his confidence wound up on the bench Gets an opportunity through injury to take over with the Raiders and winds up winning not one but two Super Bowls. Uh, I really thought that Carson Wentz needed to get out of Philadelphia and find himself a good situation, and I thought he found the perfect situation in Indianapolis. And the fact that it went so bad so quickly in Indianapolis. At first, I thought he was going to find the scenario you exactly described. That he was going to go somewhere else, good situation, good coaching staff, and just kind of reinvent himself and go on and become the player that we kind of thought he could have been here in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The fact that it went so bad so quick in a place like Indianapolis makes me wonder if it's ever going to happen to him. You know, we've seen examples. You know, Plunkett's an example. Dilfer's an example. There have been quarterbacks that have done that. And I kind of thought Wentz was going to do it, but I thought it was going to do it here. The fact that this went, this, this thing blew up the way it blew up, now I wonder if it's ever going to happen. Yeah, and it's crazy how it really kind of came to a head the last couple weeks of the year because I think it was Christmas night where they played the Patriots at home and they won and Wentz played a pretty good game, made some made some really good throws, and they seemed to be on, on the path to the postseason. And then that implosion the final two weeks of the season, and, you know, it's like it it's all falling apart for him now. And it yeah. looks like they're going to move on. It's just yep. crazy. Yeah, you look at his numbers, his stats for the season, you say, well, it wasn't too bad. But when you see the way it ended, and the way he played, in, all they needed was one of those last two games. Yeah. All, and they should have won them both. But all they needed was one. And they lost those games. And they lost the games really by the, because of the quarterback. Yeah, no doubt about it. And real quick before we go to break, Ray, we were talking about this off the air a little bit. But the way Jason Kelsey you know, has played the last couple of years, and obviously a big story this offseason has been 
him kind of weighing his options for the future and deliberating uh, about retirement. I mean, hey, as a fan, I just love to see him come back because it's fun to watch him play. But, you know, talking about Kelsey and talking about the Hall of Fame, do you think he's got a legit shot here? Like yes. moving forward to be a Hall of Famer? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, right right now, I would tell you, Tommy, I'd be surprised if he doesn't get in. It's not like, it's, in my mind, it's not like, gee, you think he has a chance. I feel like I would be surprised if he didn't go in. I mean, I really, I think he's that good. You know, I think he's, I think he's been the best center in the NFL, not just, he's been the best center in the NFL or one of the three best for a very long time. And what's so crazy, Ray, is like for a position where there's that much physicality and that much contact, obviously every single play, he's very, he's never hurt. I mean, he, he came off the field for what, a few plays in the Giants game in New York, but you know, when you look at how great this offensive line has been over the course of the last five years, I mean, so much of that is due to Jason Kelsey and the way he's able to kind of kind of keep things together up front. Yeah, he, uh, you, you just said it. I mean, he's the one that keeps it together. I mean, look at I mean, look at the guys. Look how much change there's been around him. How many other guys have gotten hurt, and they put new guys in, and they come together. And tremendous credit to Jeff Stoutland, the offensive line coach, who does a great job. But that's Monday through Friday. On the field on Sunday, the guy that, when they break the huddle and get to the line of scrimmage, the guy that has to pull it together is the center, and it's him. Uh, and he's, he has done a tremendous job um, in terms of his smarts, in terms of his uh, command at the line of scrimmage, and just the leadership that he projects there. I mean, he's, um, yeah, I mean, to me, he's every bit a Hall of Fame player. And I would, um, I mean, I, when, I, when I was a Hall of Fame voter, one of the ways I used to judge was kind of like guys in the Hall of Fame, guys who are in the Hall of Fame that have already been in there, how would they compare to the guy we're talking about now? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I look at a guy like Kevin Mawai, who was, who was a center with the Jets and with Seattle, uh, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And to me, Kevin Mawai and Kelsey are very similar. They're very, very similar in terms of their strength, their ability to make plays, their ability to play at the second level, move, pull, um, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, Kevin Mawai to me was kind of Kelsey before Kelsey. But I think Kelsey is a better version of that. So if Kevin Mawai's in Canton, I don't see any reason why or any way that he couldn't be in Canton. So I, you know, there aren't. I don't know if there are brothers in Canton. I mean, the Mannings probably will be at some point. But to me, I think the Kelseys are both going to be in Canton. I don't. You know, Travis is certainly on a Hall of Fame path right now, and I think Jason Kelsey's already there. Yeah, they're tremendous. They're just, you know, obviously both both tremendous at what they do. No doubt about that. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, uh, still run through everybody's calls when we get back. Also, need to ask Ray about Jalen Rager and his future and whether that's going to be in Philadelphia. So we'll get to that as well. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger, Sports Radio ninety four WIP. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty five dollars per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. 
You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger. 215-592-9494. If you want to get in, and real quick before we get back to the phones, I did want to ask you about Jalen Rager because, you know, we talk about the Eagles and and the draft history, and the Rager pick, uh, it gets brought up, I mean, I think every, at least if not every day, every week, several times on this station. And, I mean, it just hasn't worked out for him in Philadelphia. Two years in, it hasn't really gotten any better. Do you see, you know, him being back here next year, or as the Eagles look to overhaul this wide receiver position, do you think it's better off just to cut ties and move on? I think it would be. Um, but if you know there are going to be people within the Eagles organization, particularly Howie Roseman, <laughs> who are going to be very reluctant to, to part with, with Jalen Rager. I mean, there's going to be some people there that the sentiment's going to be, well, let's bring him back and, and maybe, you know, maybe, you know, he, Maybe this year it'll all, it'll all click. Um, and, you know, sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes guys get off to bad starts, and then by year three all of a sudden they figure it out, and guess what? He turns into the player we thought he was going to be. I don't see that with Rager. You know, I, I really don't. And, and part of it is I just never thought he was that good. I mean, I, we were talk, when we were talking before, I, I said that people try to make the comparison between his situation and Nelson Aguilar. Wide receiver, first-round pick struggled early in his career. I see them as very different cases because I saw Aguilar play at Southern Cal. I knew he had talent. I knew he was good. Um, he just kind of had to figure it out at the NFL. He kind of had to get he kind of had to get acclimated, but I really felt that I know he can play up here. I mean, I've seen him play well enough, often enough, that I know he can play. I know the ability is there. I never felt that way about Jalen Rager. I mean, I saw him, I saw him play at TCU. You know, I did all my homework going into the draft, and I knew he was one of the guys in that draft class, you know, with Jefferson and Lamb and all those guys. And I kept, I just don't see it. I, I'll tell you, I had him as a fourth-round pick. Wow. I mean, that, that was the grade, I, the grade I gave on him was a fourth round. I mean, I thought that's kind of what he was. I thought he might be a kick returner. He might be a gadget kind of guy. But I never saw him as a, as a guy you would draft in the first round to be a front-line receiver. I just didn't see it. So, you know, I'm, I'm of the mind that I'm willing to move on. Because I just, unlike Aguilar, who I thought, this guy's got ability, you just got to unlock it. In, in Rager's case, I'm not sure the ability's there to begin with. Yeah, and, and uh, as for the other side of the ball, right, another first-round pick that just hasn't panned out, you know, is Derek Barnett. And, you know, five years in now, I thought he was going to be a really good player. And, and for this team that, that really needs to infuse the pass rush, is it worth trying to bring him back on like a one-year deal if you can, or is that another situation where it's probably better to just cut ties and move on? I think it's I think it's better to move on. And I was unlike the Rager pick, I never understood. I just I just thought it was a bad pick from the minute they made it. Um, I I, I like the Barnett pick. You know, I I saw him at Tennessee. I thought he was a good player. Um, I thought 
14th in the draft, right about where I thought he was going to go. The Eagles had a need there. I thought this is a slam dunk, really. I thought this guy's going to come in. And I know the comparisons were made. He broke Reggie White's record at Tennessee. So, And I never was prepared to compare him to Reggie White. Right. There's only one of those, okay? But there's only one Reggie White. So I never went there. But I certainly thought that he was going to come in and be a good player here. Uh, and he really hasn't approached that. I mean, he was better his first year. Then and it kind of all went backwards, and then by the last couple of years, um, it was it would reach the point where it was it was counterproductive. I mean, he was making more negative plays. He was hurting you more than he was helping you. Um, he just never uh, he was never he was always a little bit undersized, uh, and his his takeoff his his quickness off the ball was never as good as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew he was always going to be giving away some size. He's not the biggest defensive end. But I thought I thought he was going to be quick enough off the ball that he could get to the corner and get the pressure, and it never was. He was never quite big enough, and he was never quite fast enough. He just he wasn't terrible, but he was just kind of average. And when you're talking about the 14th pick in the draft, he's got to be better than average. Yeah, no doubt. And the Eagles certainly you know can't afford to miss on those kind of picks in the first round uh, with their selections this year. Uh, let's go to Jack in Santa Barbara. What's up, Jack? Hi, Tommy. How you doing? Hey, hi, Ray. Hello, Jack. How are you? I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing great. And I want to uh, acknowledge the tone-setting way you and Glenn run the "Tell Us Your Story" kind of show, and you guys are doing it this morning. Um, and, and acknowledge that uh, finished business is you telling us your story, and I love it all. Uh, the way you put that together, Ray. Oh, thanks, yeah. Jack. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Yeah, the the real special part is at the beginning of your career, where you're a young reporter uh, for Delco Times, and and the way you handled the whole uh, obituary thing with the with the Vietnam pictures and hand carrying the pictures back to the people who who lost their sons in Vietnam. I thought that was a real tone setter to me about you. Oh, so thanks, Jack. I think, I, that was I the, t- that was the, that. Um, that was the toughest job I've ever yeah. had. That was the toughest job I ever had. I graduated from college in 68 and I went to work at the Delco times. They didn't have a job for me in sports. They put me in news. Uh, and one of the things, one of my jobs, and everybody knows what was happening in 68, 69 of the Vietnam war was at its peak. Um, and it seemed like every week some kid from Delaware County was, was killed. Uh, and it was my job to go to the house and interview the parents. And, uh, God, I, it was, it was the toughest job ever. And I always had to ask for a picture to bring back to the office with me. And like you said, Jack, I, I never trusted the mail. I was never going to put that picture in the mail. Um, I, I promised the families I would bring it back personally. And I always did, but boy, it was tough. It was, that was People, people, people always said to me over the years, "Boy, it must be tough. Boy, it must be tough for to to have to go into a losing locker room. It must be tough to be in a losing locker room." I said, "You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. That, that there was nothing tougher than going in the home of a of a family that had just lost a, a son in a war and have to ask him if they'll let you in and, and talk to you. That that's the toughest thing I ever did." Yeah. Well, page forty showed me how stand-up you were, and I just wanted to put that out there to everybody who was even thinking about reading Finishing Business. Thanks, Jack. Go for it. (laughs) Um, And and I want to address the narrative about Carson here, if I may, a little bit. Sure. Um, In in this context, if you look at 
all those guys on that team that were champions already, the Chris Longs and the LeGarrette Blunt and Jason Kelsey, who's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, they bought into who this kid was. They knew that he had that it. He proved it in in Seattle. We made that throw that few quarterbacks could have made. You know the one I'm talking about. And I, I don't even think they won that game, but but that throw that he made in that game, I think it was to Aguilar. Yeah, I mean he did yeah. he did it multiple times, Jack. I mean he made some plays that year that just there weren't too many quarterbacks exactly. in the NFL that could make, and he did it. Yeah, and and you know yeah that play he's talking about in Seattle when you know he's getting drug drugged down and is able to find it find Aguilar down the field and Ray that they're the kind of plays that you talk about like earlier on where you know he was just able to do those kind of things and he just can't do them anymore and I think that's really gotten to him mentally and the play that always comes to mind for me is is that Washington game when he's in the middle and the Monday night game and yeah. it looks like he's he's dead to rights yeah, and he, pops he dis- out. He disappears. I yeah. mean you don't even see him. All you see are Washington players and all of a sudden he bursts out of it and runs for 25 yards. Yeah and it's just like that kind of stuff was never never there again after that year and it's kind of sad. It really is and I kind of wonder if we'll ever see it again. Right now you would probably say no. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Hal in Las Vegas. What's up, Hal? Fellas, how are you? Uh, Ray, I'd like to talk about two things um, you said and link them together. Uh, yesterday you mentioned Dean, the linebacker from Georgia. Yes. And today you mentioned about coaches and GMs going overboard with the measurables. Yes. <laughs> and you mentioned Dean, six foot tall. And they downgrade him because of that, which is silly. I think I, I agree with you that way. Yeah, he probably you know he probably won't even measure that when they go to the combine. He'll probably he'll probably measure less than six feet, which will drop him another couple spots in the draft. Uh, I I call it the Mike Mamula syndrome, especially for the combine. I'm sure, I'm sure you remember you remember him. Oh, very well. How he measured out all these great things. He, Eagles drafted him in the sixth round. And he turned out just to be like an okay player. Nothing yeah. special. Yeah, well, I'll give you another one. Cooper Cup. <laughs> I mean, exactly. when Cooper when Cooper Cup, when he came out of college, they said, well, he's too he's not that big and he's not that fast. And, and I said again, I said, Did you ever see him play? <laughs> the guy mm-hmm. always gets open and he always catches the ball. I mean, that's what receivers do. You know, and uh, but there are always these examples of guys. I mean, people thought Tom. You know, and when Tom Brady came out, he was a sixth round pick because people thought he didn't didn't have a strong enough arm and he wasn't mobile. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. they they make mistakes all the time. That's but see how that's that's why the draft is fun. That's why that's why fans really get into the draft. That's why people that's why people become draft nicks because everybody can become a general manager. You know, everybody thinks that they can judge talent better than the general manager of their local team. Sometimes they are right, <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> mm-hmm. and sometimes they're wrong. But that's but the fact is that as much as the NFL would like you to believe it's a science, and they talk about it as a science, and they try to make it a science with the way they measure and all the testing and all that stuff, the fact is it still comes down to a roll of the dice, and a lot of times it just comes down to your gut. Watch the tape and just decide for yourself: can this guy play or can he play? Okay, I, I, and also a lot of the mock drafts have the Eagles taken uh, the Iowa center, uh, yes. Linderbaum. Yes. And uh, I kind of like it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't argue against it. Um, 
uh, that's uh, is a kid named Tyler Linderbaum, who's a center at Iowa. He's probably the best center in college football. Um, and there's the the thinking is Kelsey, if if he isn't retiring this year, he's going to be retiring soon. So he's going to be a hard guy to replace. And and Tyler Linderbaum is, if you watch him, he is very much like Kelsey. He's about the same size, plays the same kind of game, has a lot of the same kind of skills. Um, if you were trying to figure out your own Jason Kelsey or your next Jason Kelsey, Linderbaum in this draft class is probably the closest fit. So there are some people that say with three first-round picks that the Eagles maybe should use one of them on whoever that next center is going to be. If, that's, if they decide that's the way to go, then he would be the guy in this draft. He's, I have him as my number one center. Do you also think, Ray, that, that they're still considering maybe moving a Sayamalu or, or a Dickerson to center and, and keeping one of those guys there long-term, somebody that's already in-house, or do you think the future center to replace Jason Kelsey is not currently on the roster? Um, I, would, I would not move Dickerson. I, I, would, I, I think I like – it looks to me like he's really – He's, I think he's won that job at left guard. I think he's really good. He played really well this year. He really did. I mean, he got off to uh, he got he got off to a slow start, but I mean, he had, didn't really have a training camp because he was rehabbing the injury. Mm. Um, he got put in at guard, which he hadn't played for a while. He had been a center at Alabama, so they and he got kind of got thrust in. He was just he was just being he had just been activated. Now all of a sudden, there's the injury, and now they got to put him on the field. So it took him a couple weeks to kind of get his feet on the ground, but once he did. He was really good. I mean, for, as a run blocker, he was good right away. Uh, the pass protection came along a little bit slower, but it didn't take long. By midseason, he was playing very good, and by the end of the season, he was playing really good. So I, I, li- I really like the pairing of he and Maialata on the left side. I would like to keep that together. So my first thought, if, if for some and I agree with you, I don't think Kelsey's retiring. I think he's going to come back and give you at least one more year. But Okay, if he suddenly surprises you and says, you know what, I'm done. My first thought would be to try Sayamalu at center because he's coming back. And I saw him play in college. I saw him at Oregon State, and he played every position on the line. But to be frank, his best position was center. I re- and I think they kind of drafted him with the idea in mind that he was probably going to be the successor to Kelsey ultimately. Right. So right now, if I, if I were to project it, I would say I'm, I'm willing to give Sayamalu first crack at the center position because I've seen him play it in college, and he played it very well. Yeah. 215-592-9494. If you want to get in, one more segment left. We'll run through uh, the rest of the calls as well. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger for one more segment here. And, Ray, we talked a lot of football today. I haven't gotten into a lot of the basketball stuff. Did you catch any of the uh, NBA All-Star festivities last night, the slam dunk competition or any uh, of that stuff? No, I have no interest. Well, you you made the right decision. You definitely made the right decision. We were just talking during the break with uh, Rob Ellis, who's coming up at 1 o'clock. He seems to have the same conclusion. It yeah. was It was the worst slam dunk competition I've ever seen in my life. It's like they got to just do away with that. The, the, the three-point, the skills competition – it was it was a terrible product to watch last night. So. Oh boy! Well, yeah. I I sort of I sort of got away from that a few years ago. I haven't watched uh, the skills competition in a long time. It 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 just kind of it just kind of wore out its welcome. You yeah. know, it it just it just I, at first it was kind of a novelty. 
you know, and when you had guys like Dr. J and Dominique Wilkins and stuff in it, okay, it was kind of fun. Michael Jordan, you know, it was kind of fun. You had big name guys and they were doing some things you'd never seen before, but now, you know, kind of been there, done that. It's bad when you can tell the people broadcasting it, like Shaq was obviously like completely disinterested in it. It's like when the people <laughs> who are calling the event have no interest in it. Yeah. I think that's a bad sign. I agree. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. Robin Overbrook. What's up, Robin? What's going on, guys? Hello, Rob. Good afternoon, Ray. Mr. Kelly, how are you? Hey, Rob. Hey, listen, I, I, I just want to chime in. I read your books too, Ray. And you're, you are a master storyteller, you know? Oh, thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. And here's a, and I got an idea for a book. Why? Uh, how come there was, no one's ever written a book about the uh, nine and seventy three season of the Sixers? Oh, the Sixers. <laughs> you know, Ray, I was in high school and I went to about thirty one of those home games. Oh my goodness! Why? I, just, I got it. Why would you do that? Cause they were giving out free tickets. And oh, was, okay. Yeah, they were. You you could come down there on Buffalo Braves night. You can come down there and buy a two dollar ticket. You have a Buffalo nickel. You get the other ticket free. It was just, you know, they would just come to the neighborhood and say, look, here's tickets. You go down there, it's like four or 5,000 people in the spectrum. It was, it was interesting, very interesting. It is hard to believe that a team could be that bad uh, and, and not try to be that bad. I mean, they were, they, they, this, wasn't, this wasn't the precursor to tanking. They were just that bad. I mean, they were 9-73 yeah. and 73 bad. Yeah, Roy Rubin, what, a, what, a, what an amazing coach that guy was. Yeah, he was, he was a high school coach. He was a high school coach from Long Island that they put in the NBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who could, who could forget Emmanuel Leakes and uh, Johnny Block? But um, uh, getting to Dick Vermeil, you know what? I, I, I'm glad he made the Hall of Fame. He was a great coach. But for me, it was just unfinished business, right? Because when, when we beat Dallas, that was our Super Bowl. And when we went to the Super Bowl, we were just as flat. And, we, and Oakland was just an ordinary team. And we had beat them during the regular season. We should have won that game, man. Yeah, uh, Rob, I kind of agree with you. Um, I certainly thought the Eagles were. They, you're right. They had played Oakland um, at the vet during the season. But it was a tough. If you remember, it was a tough game. It was like it was like it was like ten seven. It was a it was a brutal. It was a brutally tough game. But the Eagles did win that game. They sacked Plunkett, I think, like seven times. Uh, the Eagles were clear. I I agree. The Eagles were a better team, but they weren't that day. Uh, I think two. Th- I think you touched on one of the things. I, I really do think that the Eagles were a team under Vermeil that played a lot on emotion. Uh, yeah. And they had, emotionally, they had, they had peaked with the Dallas game. They really did. Uh, and they didn't quite have the same energy or the same emotion for the Super Bowl, which seems odd, but I do think the kind of team they were, that was true. And the other part of it was that Eagles team, those guys on that team had never been to a Super Bowl before, whereas the Raiders had. Yeah. The, Raiders yeah. had just, the Raiders had just won a Super Bowl a couple of years earlier, most of their guys had been through the Super Bowl before, and that's a whole different animal, the Super Bowl. I mean, it's everything that happens during the week, it's just, it's just not a typical football game. And I think the, the Super Bowl experience that that Raiders team had uh, and the Eagles did not, I think that factored into it too. Yeah, and that also factored into our second Super Bowl loss. Andy Reid, we should have – that was – Patriots were just an ordinary team that day, and, you know, we should have we should have beat them. They, but, had their know, chan- they had their chances in the first half, Rob. They really did. Um, that was everybody talks about the end of the game where Andy kind of mismanaged the clock and took too long and which is all true. But the Eagles had their chances in the first half to get get that game by the throat and they didn't. I mean the Patriots played a poor first half and when they went to the halftime tied you kind of felt that they had, they had lost a big opportunity there. No doubt about it. Right? Like I think about it the same way like to me, the turning point in that game was when Donovan throws the pick and it gets negated by a penalty, and it's like, okay, you have you have another life here. 
And then he throws another pick. I think it was maybe the next play or was it later in the series? And to me, that was like, you really gave away an opportunity. Yep, there. they did. That, that was a huge moment in that game. Uh, let's get Aaron in Norristown in here. What's up, Aaron? Good afternoon, right, Tom? How you guys doing? Hi, Aaron. Good. Good. Hey, so before I make my point on Carson Wentz, you brought up number 15 earlier in uh, Flyers history, Lore. Um, Ray, I'm disappointed you didn't bring up Terry Chris, Bill Clement, or even J.J. Daniel who's responsible for probably the <laughs> loudest moment in the spectrum. Am yeah, I, I think that um, I actually thought of Terry Crisp. I actually thought of Terry Crisp. I, I went to the original number 15, who was Gary Peters. But, yeah, um, I mean, well, J.J. Daniel is responsible for the loudest yeah, moment. Yeah, you know, I never, I never even gave Daniel a thought, and I think Billy Clement was 10. Yeah, yeah well, he, was, he wore 15 and 10. He wore both numbers. Okay, so. I, I remember yeah. him as a 10. Okay. So, yeah, so anyway, going to uh, Carson Wentz, who I think he's in the uh, place where quarterbacks now go, to, now go to die. They lost Andrew Luck three years ago. They, they got rid of Phil, they killed Philip Rivers' career, and now it might be the last time that uh, Carson Wentz starts the game. And I think it actually started his downfall. Well, it started in college his senior year, and then it, I think it ended. Uh, well, that went downhill for him when he got hurt in the Rams game because he really relies on his legs, and he's never had that first step since then. But he still thinks that he does. And if you look at his senior year in college, where when we drafted, he's like, oh, he won the, he won the. Uh, championship in college well he pretty much had nothing to do with them winning and Ray, i'm going to ask you a question if, if if carson Wentz started the first three games of his senior year got hurt and easton stick leads them to the championship game against the team in jacksonville state that you could have probably started a quarterback and they would have won and carson Wentz almost demands to start that game and his coach complies who do you think deserves to start that game his senior year well i guess as as the upperclassmen they probably would have gone to Wentz anyway but there was dissension on that team, which was documented and wasn't really talked about much, that Easton Stick deserved to start. He's the one who let him in the game. And then Carson goes into that game, plays like garbage. He was like 6 for 16. He won. They pretty much won that game with their defense. He ran the ball like nine times for 80 yards. So I think his inability to be, even though he's mobile, his, he was really relied on that quick first step to get out. And he relied on his legs to do everything. I think that injury against the Rams is really, he never, he'll never have that step again, unfortunately. And unless he and he is unwilling, as he's admitted, to change to learn to become a true pocket passer, which he has the talent to be. So yeah. I don't well, think he's ever going to start again in the NFL. Well, no, he probably will Thanks, just Aaron. be just by the nature of the league. I mean, he'll get an opportunity to be on another team, um, and he'll probably go there as a starter or at least competing for the starting job. And then it's up to him. And then it's up to him. Um, but will he ever get? Will he ever really rise to the promise that we thought that he was going to be? At this point, I would say it probably doesn't look like it is. You know? No, I mean, you felt like if that was going to happen, it was going to happen in Indy. I really thought, I really thought, I, honestly, t Tommy, I really thought that he was going to be a, a comeback of the year guy in Indianapolis. I mean, it all seemed like it was set up perfectly for him. And he went there, and for part of the year, he played really well. But at the end, it just completely fell apart to the point where now they're ready to part ways with him. And now he's just going to become, it's hard to believe, I mean, he's, a, he's going to be 30 and he's going to be a journeyman. Whoever thought that his career would end this way? No, no, completely unpredictable four years ago that it would have ended this way. But uh, that'll do it for us today, Ray. Quick three hours. It was very enjoyable. I appreciated uh, you know, working with you today, and hopefully we get to do it again I sometime en soon. Enjoyed it tremendously, Tommy. Let's do this again. Yeah, sounds good. So that'll do it for us. Uh, you guys on hold, stay there. Rob Ellis coming up next. He's got you at one. Thanks to Moshe Kravitz for producing. Uh, I'm Tom Kelly with Ray Dinger, Sports Radio 94 WIP. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.